to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. I am so excited about this topic because so many of you over the past few weeks have been asking, what's it like in a psychiatrist's office? If I do decide to get help, what will I be in for? Dr. Jim Polo joins us every week on Beyond Well, the program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And he's had a fascinating incredible career as a psychiatrist from a general physician, child psychiatrist, adult psychiatrist. He worked in one of the state hospitals, which helps the most incredibly mentally ill people. He's just run the gamut. And today he's helping run the behavioral health portion of one of our biggest healthcare companies here in Oregon. So it is so great to have a person who knows about so many different facets of psychiatry, Dr. Polo, and it's wonderful to see you again. Oh, it's good to see you. And thank you for that introduction. That's amazing. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So um, we have so many cool questions and I want to know whether you want those first or do you want to talk a little bit about your journey to become a psychiatrist? You know, let me just give you a snippet of my journey because okay. it kind right. of reflects a little bit of my background, yeah. uh, but it also kind of gives you a hint at what I think you can expect. I'll just highlight very, very briefly, you know, when I was in college, I had an undergraduate degree uh, initially in engineering. I changed over to the social sciences and psychology, and I volunteered for a program to be a big brother to an autistic child. So on weekends, I would basically just play and do activities with this autistic child and communicating with him was so challenging, but it got me interested. And eventually went to medical school. And once I was in medical school, then I had to think about what I wanted to be. And so initially wanted to be a psychiatrist. And so I did my psychiatric internship during my psychiatric internship. I, I had already two kids before I started my internship and my wife and I got pregnant. She was also a physician and we needed to take a break uh, just because we needed to kind of get our family together. We had three little kids under the age of four and I just was overwhelmed with training. But the reason why I highlight that is because when I left my internship, I went through a period where, do I really want to be a psychiatrist? Psychiatrists, you know, they, they're kind of strange. People don't treat them the same. They're not even real doctors. So I went through a, a phase where I thought, okay, I want to be a radiologist. Then I decided, no, nah, they don't talk to anybody. Then I went through a phase where I said, oh, I want to be an emergency room doctor right there at the front line. And even though I enjoyed the emergency room, I realized, you know, half the time I was running late in the ER because I'd get involved in a conversation with people that came into the ER and nine times out of 10, we were talking about emotional or behavioral things rather than whatever their injury was. Then I went through a, a phase where I thought I want to be an orthopedist because they do surgery and they fix things. And I realized, oh my gosh, they don't talk to people either. And once something's fixed, the person's gone and you never hear back from them. Yeah. And they made it back to psychiatry. And what I loved about psychiatry that I realized, you really got to have a relationship with people. Mm. Everyone's different. And it was about sharing a story and helping them through a difficulty. And so with that, I went back to training. I finished up in psychiatry. I did child psychiatry and I have not looked back. I love what I do. Wow. I want to just talk briefly about this report that I just read. It's from the New American Economy Journal. They said there's 30,451 practicing psychiatrists in the U.S., and that's nine psychiatrists per 100,000 people. That's way short of the 15 to 17 that they think should be providing it. And most are in cities, that there's very few psychiatrists left in rural America. What's happening there, Dr. Polo? There's no question that there's a shortage of psychiatrists uh, in our nation. And that is not something that's new. And I'll highlight that the shortage of child psychiatrists is, is even worse. There's a couple things to keep in mind. We went through a period of 
time where we were transitioning from a specialty that was largely based on counseling where medication was added. And that changed so many dynamics in psychiatry that there are, are some people that enter psychiatry that end up leaving it because they just don't want to be somebody who writes medication. They want to actually be engaged, involved with actually treating patients. And there was a time when insurance companies wouldn't reimburse for that. They would want people to see a counselor, but only see a psychiatrist when it came to medication. So that's been one of the challenges. Stigma, I think, is another challenge. I'll just tell you a personal story. You know, when I disclosed to my parents, I had finally decided I was going to be a doctor. They said to me, this is my own parents. They said to me, what? You wasted all that time in medical school just to be a psychiatrist? They didn't mean that in a bad way, but that's just a reflection of how stigma kind of prevents people because they think twice about, gee, do I really want to do that? You know, what will you know, what is it that is successful to be a doctor? You know, yeah, everybody thinks right. their surgeons are the glamorous people, but it, it's really about fit, you know, what you want. And so we have a huge shortage. And obviously, if you're in practice, you want to be in an area where you can fill your practice up. And that doesn't tend to be rural communities. Right. One of the things that has been a blessing is that telehealth allows us to really now begin to offer treatment into some of the rural communities, what telehealth doesn't do is it doesn't increase the number of psychiatrists. We still have a shortage and we're going to continue to have a shortage for quite some time. When you talk to young people in medical school, do you encourage them to think about psychiatry? I do. And believe it or not, there's been a surge recently of young physicians wanting to go into both primary care and uh, psychiatry. And I think it's largely because, you know, healthcare is evolving and changing. There's a lot of documentation. There's a lot of technology in there. And at the end of the day, healthcare is really about a relationship. Yeah. And one of the specialties where you can really get to know your patients and you can really kind of have a conversation. You're not driven by a time clock to see somebody every 10 minutes is psychiatry. So there are still plenty of young people that are excited about going into psychiatry. And of course, in the media, we've been talking about behavioral health and how challenging the pandemic has been. And people are realizing that's an important part of what we should do. You know, you you see the stereotype of psychiatrists as being the person that somebody from New York City who's very successful and really rich and very neurotic goes to see every single week and it continues on as a relationship for years and years and years. But that's not the norm, correct? That is not the norm. Now, there are folks that do that. I have to be honest. There are definitely some individuals, and we tend to refer to them as the worried well, you know, they're really kind of okay. They may have a little neurosis or they're neurotic or they've got some personal type issues, but in general, they have a job. They're doing well. In fact, as you highlighted, some are quite well off in their yeah. jobs. They can afford to see a psychiatrist every week and talk about what's going on. And I have to be honest, I've had a few patients in, in my past that probably didn't really need to see me, but they really wanted to see me. And I, I did help them. But you know, when I think about folks that are really struggling with things where they really need to see somebody, those are the people I would much rather focus on. So I'm going to throw a few of the questions that people have. Um, what is the difference between psychiatry and psychotherapy? That was asked by John. Ah, that's an important distinction. So psychotherapy is kind of the process of doing counseling. And traditionally, psychiatrists are not the only ones that can do psychotherapy. So for example, psychologists are exquisitely well-trained to provide psychotherapy. Now, the biggest difference, though, between a psychiatrist and any other type of counselor that provides psychotherapy is that psychiatrists are physicians first. So they have to go completely through medical school. 
They understand all the basics, just like any doctor. They can do blood pressure. They can check for diabetes. They can, you know, evaluate for a fracture. They can deliver a baby. All those things to become a physician, a psychiatrist must do first. And then they specialize in the practice of psychiatry, of which psychotherapy is only part of their training. The other biggest difference is that psychiatrists in general are the only providers that can really prescribe psychotropic medication where they've been trained for that. Now we have nurse practitioners that can also prescribe, but most counselors, and in fact, uh, in most jurisdictions, counselors and psychologists cannot prescribe medications. And Julie says, this is a great question after what you just said, if I see a psychiatrist, will I have to take medication? Absolutely not. And furthermore, a good psychiatrist is not going to try to imply that you must take a medication. I will share with you that I have seen many, many patients where I have felt strongly that a medication would be helpful. And I explain why. I explain the pluses and minuses, but I still give them the choice. And I've had patients that will say, you know, I don't really want to take a medication. And frankly, that's okay. What I remind folks is that when it comes to the practice of psychiatry, medications in general, for most conditions, they don't change the way you think. What those medications tend to do is they help you deal with some symptoms, many of which are physical, which then allows you to, to kind of do the business of the counseling. So yeah. the way I explain it to the average patient is this medication might help you sleep better. It might help you have less anxiety and you're going to be better able for us to engage in counseling yeah. and more attentive. And then later on, you may not need the medication anymore. And oh, by the way, the counseling is really what's going to help you in the long run. And Heather also says, um, if I go on medication, will it be forever? And that's a complex question. Let me tell you why that's a complex question. In general, the answer is no. And the reason why in general, the answer is no, is because the grand majority of people that do have some kind of condition it's a condition that is, you know, it's transient. They went through a period of depression or they went through a period of anxiety or they had something where they were not doing well and the medication was part of their treatment to help them. However, there are some conditions where we do recommend that the patient probably is going to need medication for a long time, if not their entire life. So the easy example to, to provide is if you have an individual that has schizophrenia, Schizophrenia is a diagnosis where people have disordered thinking and they are psychotic. We don't have any medications that cure that, but we do have medications that help decrease the psychosis, sometimes take it away completely, mm -hmm. and medications that will help keep folks organized in terms of their thinking. So for folks with schizophrenia, generally, we're going to recommend that they be on medications potentially lifelong. I love this question. Why is my diagnosis changing? And this is from Jacob. They yeah. start out with one diagnosis. They trust it. Maybe the medication doesn't work. The therapy isn't working. And then it changes. Is this frequent? And why is it changing? When it comes to diagnosis in psychiatry, in mental health, what we do is we, we have sets of symptoms or criteria that we use to say, if you have these criteria, or if you have five out of the seven things or two out of the four things, then this will be your diagnosis. And this is primarily so that we can categorize folks so that we can understand how we group people together. But, but let me highlight something that's important. And I'm going to use depression. I can have two folks that have the diagnosis of quote, major depression. One might be depressed 
because of something that happened to them. The other might be depressed because they can't do well in their job or they can't form relationships. So, so even though they have the same diagnosis, they have very different reasons for why they're depressed. Mm-hmm. Symptoms. You might have somebody that has major depression where they can't sleep and it's part of their depression. We have other patients that might be depressed and they're sleeping all the time. So the reason why I point that out is that first of all, from a medication perspective, you might use a different medication for those two individuals to still address their depression. And in addition to that, people change and evolve over time. Sometimes new symptoms show up. Sometimes some symptoms go away. And some of these diagnoses are very close to each other. And that's why sometimes the diagnosis is not really clear. And I also think that people probably, you know, as you said, the DSM was created in many ways to help insurance to be able to pay for what it is you're doing, right? Right. And so it's and like people get really attached to these diagnoses, though. Well, so let me give you another example. So one of my areas of expertise is bipolar disorder. And, yeah. I, and I used to run a clinic for only children that had symptoms akin to bipolar disorder, because in general, we don't like to make that a, a diagnosis until somebody is an adult. And in fact, currently in young kids, I tend to use a different diagnosis before I really call them bipolar, because just yeah. using that diagnosis can sometimes label an individual and create some stigma. Yeah. Now, I could line up a hundred people with bipolar disorder. And I, I'm telling you to the average individual, they will all look like they have a different diagnosis completely. But I can talk with a colleague and say, listen, I have a referral for you of somebody that I think the primary diagnosis is bipolar type one. They're currently depressed. And that provider, that, that colleague of mine now knows exactly what I'm talking about. However, they will still be attuned to the fact when they meet that person, that person may be very individually different from anybody else that has bipolar. Mm-hmm. So from a clinical perspective, this is what allows us to communicate. It's what allows us to do research. It's what allows us to develop treatment plan. Mm-hmm. It's really about still trying to be individualistic with each person. Wow. You know, I, I heard Do- Dr. Bruce Perry, who has written a book on trauma with Oprah recently, and he was saying one of his biggest concerns is that the medical profession takes kids who have had tremendous trauma. They've been abused or neglected or raised in cages, and they're showing this response to the trauma, and we give them a diagnosis that sticks with them for a lifetime. Are you at all concerned about that very thing, that the trauma response is going to be different? It m- might very well look like a mental illness but indeed it could just be something that needs to be worked through in response to trauma. Yeah. A couple key points. First of all, all of us are susceptible to being traumatized. If you experience a set of circumstances that are overwhelming, that's a trauma and different people handle trauma in different ways. Now, when it comes to children, I'm very sensitive in the sense that Trauma has more of an impact on kids. Remember a couple of things. Kids don't have a full understanding of the world around them. So their resources to understand what's happening is limited. Kids also tend to be somewhat egocentric. And what that really means is that they look at the world with themselves in the center. When good things happen, they give themselves credit. When bad things happen, they think it's their fault. Kids are more likely in a very similar type event to have more challenges with trauma than an adult would. And unfortunately in our country, trauma happens 
all the time to so many kids. And you highlighted some of the more severe ones, you know, a child that is being abused or neglected or harmed in some way. Those are the very severe forms of trauma, but kids can also be traumatized in other ways that we sometimes don't necessarily think of. Bullying, yeah. uh, ostracized in school, the, the last kid to, to be chosen for the team every time, that can be a trauma to a child. Children can also be traumatized by seeing challenges in their family. A divorce can be traumatic to a child. The reason why I share that with you is because Trauma generally creates responses that sometimes are enduring throughout life. And those responses can sometimes take the form of what we will think of as many different diagnoses. Uh, obviously, in some cases, people will suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. Some people will have an anxiety disorder. Some people will have depression. And some folks will even have a combination of several of those. And so that's the other reason why it's very difficult sometimes to focus on just a diagnosis. Okay. I want to go back, Dr. Polo, um, to some of our questions that are really good. Do I really have to lie down on a couch and talk to my psychiatrist? <laughs> uh, so, no so, uh, it's a question, isn't it? Happy to know the couches are gone. In fact, I've, I've never had a couch in my office. Uh, that image in, in one's yeah. head comes from the psychoanalysis days back in the 60s and 70s. But yeah. the reality is most psychiatrists are going to sit down with their patients and they're going to have a conversation face-to-face -face, looking at each other. There's no couch. Yeah, that's such a relief. What are the most important questions that I can ask my psychiatrist? This is from Greg. Oh, well, so Greg's question is really a good one because it's hard to see a psychiatrist. It's frightening to go see somebody you don't know what to expect. The first thing I would encourage any patient that's going to see a psychiatrist is to feel very, very comfortable asking questions. If you don't understand something, it's perfectly fine to, to say, I, I don't really understand that. Could you explain that a little bit to me? Usually it's the psychiatrist asking questions first. Yeah. And so what I will often remind people of is you should expect, first of all, that the psychiatrist is going to be respectful. Being the psychiatrist does not give them permission to be disrespectful or to ask questions in a, in a way that are demeaning or insulting or judgmental. When patients come to me, I actually tell them ahead of time, I'm going to be asking a lot of questions. These questions are to help me understand who you are. Some of them might not make sense to you. And if you don't want to tell me something, that's okay. Just tell me you'd rather not talk about that. Maybe at a future point, you'll change your mind. Please be as truthful with me as you can, even I, if I ask you sensitive questions. The process of getting to know somebody then requires looking in many different parts of their life and relating it to the main reason that they actually then came in for. And obviously, sometimes people go to see a psychiatrist for some very sensitive private type issues. Is my privacy going to be protected? This is Amber's question. And I think it's probably one that every person who has ever disclosed anything embarrassing or private in nature wants to know the answer to. Absolutely. You should expect privacy and you should even ask questions if you're concerned about that at all. Let me tell you what I do. When I have patients in my practice, I do have a record of what we talk about and what we discuss. Mm -hmm. That's not part of an electronic record that goes into any system that other people can read. Mm -hmm. What I put in the electronic system that sometimes is shareable with other physicians is usually only the basics of when they saw me, the diagnosis I'm treating, and any key recommendations like counseling 
uh, medication and concerns of, of when they might want to coordinate with a different physician, particularly if somebody's on other medications for you know a different disorder, we want to make sure that we're not having a, a problem. But let's say the individual is seeing me for a marital relationship that's got a lot of sensitive issues in it. That's not going to be in the record for other people to see. And I'm not going to share that with an insurance company. Um, that leads to this other question, which is what is it that psychiatrists are writing down? <laughs> I think that's right. so funny. That's Michael. So, so Michael's question is great. And let me tell you why <laughs> Michael's question is great. I am exquisitely sensitive in the sense that I want to really feel like patients know that I'm getting to know them and that I remember why they're unique and different from other people. But the reality is if I don't write something down, I might not remember that because I see so many people. What I have started uh, to do early in my practice is I would write notes that would help me understand what are the key things that we talked about, but why did we talk about those things and what made them important? And then before I would see the patient for that next session, I would look at my notes. So for example, let's say somebody had told me a very sensitive issue of their childhood that had really bothered them and they became very tearful during the session. I'm not going to forget that because yeah. I'm going to write that down so that if we touch on it again, I can say, you know, that reminds me of the time that you told me about when your dad, you know, took away your pet. And that allows the individual to first of all, recognize I really am focusing on them and what's important to them. And frankly, it allows me to do a better job. So what's in that chart are all the things that I need to help me to get to know them differently from somebody else. How do you, and this is my question from Sheila, um, how do you take in so much sadness, hurt, despair, and not have it impact you personally? Oh, this is probably um, one of the things that has been challenging for me over the years. You know, to be a good psychiatrist, you really have to be empathetic. You have to be able to relate to people's emotional uh, challenges. I've heard horrendous stories. Okay. And, and I've seen people that have done horrendous things. And that's a fine line between being empathetic and able to kind of put yourself in their shoes and understand feelings, yeah, but still be able to leave that and keep yourself intact. Yeah. And some people do it better than others. I'm very careful to divide my work and my focus on patients and not let it bleed into my personal life. Mm -hmm. When I have had a challenging case or a very difficult circumstance, I do have a few people that I can share things with. You know, my wife has been very supportive. My wife is also a physician and also trained initially in psychiatry. Mm. And I remind myself that the important part of why I can help people is because I do have feelings. And the reason why I say that is because when I'm struggling with something that happened with a patient, I don't see that as a deficit. And I don't get afraid that somehow there's something wrong with me. Mm. I remind myself, you know what? This guy committed this horrible event and it's eating him alive. And I realize how it would be. And it feels horrible to talk about. And I'm angry about it. And that's okay. Have you ever had the experience where you had to turn someone in because they were about to hurt someone else? I have. It doesn't happen very often. And there's a number of ways that you can prepare folks before that ever happens because it's the aftermath where you want to preserve the relationship. Yeah. In all of my patients, somewhere in the initial part of working with them, I remind them that if they tell me something 
that is going to put them at risk for getting harmed or somebody else potentially at risk, I may have to disclose that. Mm -hmm. But I also tell them, but that's not what I jump to do. The first thing I'm going to do is talk with you about why I'm concerned. And I'm going to really make sure I feel confident that there's risk there because most patients, when they're thinking clearly, will recognize, yeah, I don't want you to let me do something I would regret. Mm-hmm. Problem is when they're in the moment of it, and I've had people that have thought they're going to kill somebody. I've had people that thought they're going to kill themselves, where I have had to say, you know, I'm not comfortable. I think you're at risk. We need to admit you. I'm going to have to call somebody. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you a real life story uh, that happened to me that also touches on this from the opposite direction. I had a patient many years ago that came to see me. And in the course of the evaluation, this patient was clearly suffering from depression Mm. and his marriage was falling apart. He was doing terrible at work. Everything was falling apart. About six sessions in, what he finally disclosed was that he had murdered somebody. And it it was a very simple story, but a horrible story. He had been on a business trip. He had a gun in his glove compartment. He thought he was getting carjacked. And as it turns out, he probably was. Pulled the gun out. In preventing himself from being carjacked, he shot this individual. The individual fell over and he drove away. In the following uh, day, in the papers, he read about man found in the street, shot, killed, suspected drug dealer. And the story was a drug deal gone bad. Nobody knew. He came to see me five years after this event. And for five years, this gentleman's life had been falling apart. He felt guilty. He felt he should have probably turned himself in. And had he turned himself in, probably he would have been okay. It didn't appear that he had broken any law. And certainly, I'm I'm not saying that he didn't, but at least he realized he probably should have turned himself in. Now, here's the reason why I share this story with you. I struggled because I thought to myself, okay, this guy has disclosed to me that he murdered somebody. The real issue is, is he at risk for hurting somebody else right now? And do I need to disclose this? And so, first of all, I came to my own conclusion. I didn't think he posed a risk or harm to anybody else. And so I felt like I can't turn this guy in yet, not based on what I know. The second thing I did is I explained to him my dilemma and said, I'm going to have a colleague of mine whom I trust also evaluate you and give me an opinion. He will not be able to disclose because I won't give him permission. His job is to give me an opinion on my findings. And what happened on that case is my colleague came to the same conclusion. Jim, he told you about an event that happened. He demonstrates no risk that I can see. I don't think uh, it's appropriate to disclose. And what happened over the course of about eight months of therapy, he struggled with whether or not he should or shouldn't turn himself in. And and so that's a case where I protected his privacy, despite the fact that he had revealed he had done something quite tragic. Wow, that's such a boy. If you think about, you know, some of the moral implications of your job, that is like one of those cases that just like gives me shivers to think about that. Like who gets up in the morning and puts on their shirt thinking this is something that I'm going to have to try to decide today. It's incredible. If you would, Dr. Polo, in just the few minutes we have left, if you had three things to tell people about psychiatry and why you believe that especially young physicians should consider going into it, what would be those three things? You know, the three things I, I would highlight is that first of all, 
there's nothing about mental health that anybody should be afraid of. It is just part of who we are as humans in the sense that our lives are filled with challenges, filled with stressors, filled with relationships. And how we handle that is an everyday event. Mm. And helping somebody else to handle those mm. is really rewarding. I also think that as a psychiatrist, to be honest, I spent a lot of time in self-reflection. And I think it's actually helped me too. I, I'm I'm pretty broad thinking. I think about things very carefully, but I remind myself that I too sometimes have my own little neurotic issues and my own little challenges and I need to make sense of the world around me too. I think the thing that I would tell anybody that's thinking about going into the behavior health field is that it's very, very rewarding when you help somebody navigate through a problem and their life is better. Being able to see that is just really rewarding. It's meaningful. What you do with me every week is so meaningful. And I'm so grateful to take the step to actually take care of your mental health. It's one thing to think about it. It's one thing to learn about it. But if there's something you can do in actually calling somebody like Dr. Polo up, getting an appointment and actually speaking about your mental health with a professional, you're going to be way, way better off. Dr. Polo, it's so good to see you again. And if you have any other questions or topics you'd like us to take on, you can send them over to me at our website at beyondwellwithsheilahamilton.com. Make it a great day.